you have to be willing to step out and go, no, we've really got to do something a little bit different because these people are never going to thrive or experience the, the full growth capability that they have if we don't help nurture them. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Adam Moore here, actually, with Chloe <laughs> Goodry-Reed. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about what a buyer's, you heard that right, a buyer's code of conduct could and should look like. For all of our listeners who know the field of supplier diversity and just corporate buying in general, you'll know that many enterprises have a supplier's code of conduct that outlines how companies they contract with should operate. In this conversation, actually, we're going to flip that script and detail how bigger companies should treat their suppliers. While we do often have guests and great conversations on this topic today, we're giving you a concise outline on how the most effective and ethical companies work with their suppliers. So, Chloe, you ready to jump in on this topic I'm with me today? I'm ready to jump awesome. in. I'm so happy to be here today. It's so good to so, have you yes. back in the chair. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, <sighs> been busy. Very, very busy. You've been doing great things over there. So I know that's not what the episode's about, but I just want to let everybody know that you have been killing it. Trying, trying, but while not killing myself. So yes, yes. You know what? That needs to be in the code of conduct somewhere too, right? Don't kill <laughs> yourself on this stuff, guys. It's, you know, we there's more beyond entrepreneurship, I promise you. Yes, so, yes. So kind of looking at this, right? So we need to set ground rules. And what would be a set of rules corporate supply chain departments set for their suppliers in a code of conduct. How, how strictly do you, because you're in this, and right. our audience may or may not know, I've actually gone back into the corporate buying site. So now we actually have the corporate buyer and the small supplier uh, okay. on the show again, right? So how strictly do you see the rules enforced? I mean, I don't see them enforced very much, mm -hmm. but I do see that there are a lot of unspoken rules. And I think it's very important that you, you understand go. what those rules are for each of your customers, because no one's going to tell you necessarily, like this isn't how we conduct ourselves or we want our suppliers to do business. You will just be released from that contract. Right, right. You know, and that goes back to, we've talked a lot about of it in the show is understanding the corporate culture you're about to get yourself into. Right. Exactly. Right? right. And I've said that I've even said that now back on the corporate side. And I was like, I can negotiate a contract all day long. I really don't care what the commodity is. Right. But I have to understand how you, the company I'm working for, want to see the deal done. Right. Right. And that goes to those unspoken rules. What is the culture? What are the unspoken rules? What are the expectations of leadership? And I think that's where our small suppliers kind of get in trouble is not understanding what the expectations of leadership are maybe a level or two above the immediate buyer they deal with. Yeah, I think that organizationally, they don't understand it either. You Correct. Know? And if they're publicly traded, if your customer is publicly traded, a lot of these unspoken rules are documented in their 10K and their annual reports, quarterly mm -hmm. reports. There's some reference in there around how they want to show up to the public. And if you're representing your brand as 
a contractor or someone on site, then the expectation is that you embody that culture and those code of ethics. I could not agree with you more. And you brought up a really good point that I think we've mentioned before, but I think a lot of people just don't realize to go get, and that is the 10Ks and the quarterly filings and the annual filings, because you really will see what are they up against, right? right. Because oftentimes in those two, is if a company has had to change something because of a new ruling, it's in there, right? right? Or if they got a slap on the wrist from a governing body, it's in there. It's in there. You know, and that's something you have to be aware of, right? Yeah, and that definitely drives any sort of organizational changes, um, policies. And so a lot of times, even asking someone in the organization, they may not always know. So to your point, talking to someone who may be a couple levels above is important. But if you're not able to get to that person, looking at their annual filings is a great place to start. Yep. And, you know, I think it's always a good thing for, uh, you know, we talk about skip meetings, right, where you talk to one level above your immediate uh, supervisor. I think for suppliers, you should ask for a skip meeting, right? Let me talk to one level above you. Right. Right. Just to get another perspective, just to understand what is a bigger picture. What is a bigger picture? Yeah. Yeah. So, So, you know, we talked about what it it looks for suppliers and where they find it. But, you know, what does a buyer's code of conduct look like? You know, I think that's a really great question. And... Again, I think there are some kind of unwritten rules, unwritten expectations that we need to take into account when we're talking about this, right? And one of the biggest ones I've always seen, having been on both sides of the aisle now, is in the RFP process. Yes. Right? And it's, now, it is difficult. Let me, let me just say this. It is difficult for corporates because you walk a very fine line of how much information can I divulge to whom, how do I have to distribute it evenly because we have to keep the playing field even. Otherwise, somebody could raise their hand and you're in a bunch of legal trouble because all of a sudden you've given somebody an unfair advantage in a competitive event. So with that being said, though, I think sometimes uh, corporates need to, to be held to a higher standard on what is the actual scope? Is this a champion challenger event? Is this truly a competitive event? Right. You don't have to tell me who the incumbent is, but let me know I'm competing against an incumbent. Right, right. I think that changes the entire dynamic. And I I saw that personally on the small supplier side. Yeah. I think also if we're talking about the onset and then winning the business, giving them some idea or reference point around what the budget is, because sometimes costs can be a lot higher for smaller companies. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't get the economies of scale of being a larger supplier. And so sometimes their pricing models may be a little bit not as competitive as some of the larger players. I mean, it can go both ways, but letting them know what the budget is so that they are at least in range, I think is also helpful. Right. You know, and I know all of my corporate listeners just cringed and they're like, well, they're winning a negotiation lever, right? You just took pricing right off the table. Yeah. It, It depends on the commodity. It really does. It really does. And depending on the stage and the life cycle of that small business, this is a teaching moment for them as well. So yes. when you talk about, you know, helping grow and develop suppliers, letting them know, like, here's the range that these other proposals or what we've been paying historically, this mm-hmm. is the range you should be in 
generally, right. now it's still right. going to be competitive so that they're not completely out of whack or underpricing themselves significantly. Because right. the last thing you want is to be taking advantage of a small business, though, too. Correct. And sometimes I think corporates lose that. We're talking about our code of ethics. I think sometimes they lose that because there is so much pressure from your CFO and above of saving, 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 savings, tracking savings, tracking savings. And I better see a savings over the initial proposal. Right. Yes. And, yes. And, and if you're a small business <laughs> and you're not used to that and you're not used to playing that game, you might not realize you might come up to the table with your best offer. And then sometimes you can't even play that game correctly because sometimes it's like you only have one shot at the pricing and then the corpus moving on. Exactly. Exactly. So you have to be very thoughtful and intentional. But yeah. there's ways to ask and I think there's ways to respond as corporates for sure. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I think as corporates, we have to really take a hard look at that. If we're if we're inviting a small business, we have to be sensitive, like you said, to that. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And I think part of that is then also in the unwillingness to share information after the RFP closes. Right. Right. Because you said it very well. It's a teaching moment for some of these folks. It is. And I know when I was a corporate beforehand, before this this gig, I actually took one of my um, diverse suppliers aside and said, look, I'm going to include you in this RFP. You're not going to win it. You're just you're not. Okay. Right up front. I want you to compete. You're not going to win. I was like, but I have to see how you're going to compete. I need my corporate buyers to see you show up. Right. Right. And I need for us to be able to have a conversation afterwards. Yeah. They were fine with that. Right. They're like, okay, we get it. Right. We're going to put our best foot forward. If we win, that's just gravy. But we going in our, you know, the expectation was set. Right. So I, I think that's some of the stuff we have to be doing. It's definitely some of the stuff that we have to be doing. And then when we talk about just also just the respect factor and how to treat each other, I think Mm -hmm. is also another thing um, that gets overlooked. And I think we've talked about this intentionality and just your communication and being transparent both ways is the best way to start those relationships off on on a good foot. Yes. Exactly. So it also then comes back to being a buyer or being a supplier diversity manager in corporate America kind of takes some bravery. Absolutely. Right. It really does, especially when you're dealing with the diverse community, because you have to be willing to step out and go, no, we've really got to do something a little bit different because these people are never going to thrive or experience the, the full growth capability that they have if we don't help nurture them. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I don't know about you, but every very successful Diverse business I know, right? And I'm thinking some, some very large tech-oriented diverse businesses that are in the billions of dollars to spend, right? Every time I talk to the, the ownership, the leadership, they're like, we wouldn't be here if so-and-so or such-and-such company didn't take us under their wing and kind of show us the ropes. Right. Which is so important. Yes. We talked about just teaching moments and the development. If it is to support small and diverse businesses and yeah. taking that extra step is important to, you know, their sustainability. Yeah. So I don't know if this fits in the buyer's code of conduct, but maybe some of it needs to be us rethinking our mentoring programs. Absolutely. Right. How many mentoring programs have we all been involved in as either a small business or a corporate? And to be honest with you, are we moving the needle 
No. I, I can't think of, I can't think of anybody who's come out with a significant study in the last three, four years, right, that shows mentoring has really moved the needle. Has it helped? Yes. Have we given soft skills to owners that needed them? Most yes. definitely. Do I have a plethora of 50 million and above small, diverse firms from it? Eh, maybe a handful. But given the number of companies that are going through mentoring, I think the, the return is rather low. I, and, and, you know, I think one of the, the things that holds people back is when you sign that mentoring agreement, you say, I'm doing this not to get business with the company I'm being mentored by. I think right. we need to take that clause out and say, if you, company, are going to mentor diverse company A, they need to A, become a supplier right away. Absolutely. They need to start delivering services to you and you need to start mentoring them on their service delivery model to your industry because they're actually doing it. Thank you. Thank you. you. I mean, I wish I had like a drum roll to just <laughs> applaud you for that because so many of these mentorship programs, it's like, you know, even in writing, there's no guarantee right. that you'll get a contract, you know, no. and so... And I, and while I appreciate the efforts, it's, yes. there's tons of other things that are vying for a small business, you know, whether yes. it's the CEO or the business development person, sales team vying for their attention. And right. so they have to be thoughtful about what they do. And if it's not going to lead to an opportunity, then. Correct. But guess how much money a master costs, Zero. Yeah. Put the master in place. Yeah. Right. Make it a no, a no, um, you know, competitive master. It's either if you want to be part of my program, you sign my master, period. End of story. No questions asked. Right. 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 Then it's like, OK, now I have an NDA with you, essentially, because we have a master agreement and we can actually practice getting your salespeople in front of people that might actually buy your stuff. Right. You're now considered a supplier. I love that. Right. I, I think mean, we should like, document this and right? publish this for sure, because yes. you put that MSA in place. Well, and by the way, those MSAs take a while to, right. to get finalized. So right. if you've got a four to six month mentorship program, you might just be finishing that MSA up by the end of the mentorship program. Right. Right. And you can't tell me in four to six months, you can't find some small under hundred thousand dollar project to put that mentor mentee on. Yeah. Right. And make the mentee mentor relationship 18 months, realizing the first six months is just trying to get them on there and walking them through the risk process in corporate America. That's a mentoring exercise in and of its own. In and of its own, just deeply understanding that and making sure that they have the resources to be in compliance with that as well. Yes, exactly. And what does that mean in that type of thing? And have them sit down and talk to legal. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's interesting. It is. It is interesting. And I think that there should be some potential funds set aside to help with right. you know, some of those requirements if needed as well. Yes, exactly. If we're really trying to grow. If we're businesses. really trying to grow businesses, if, if we as corporate America are serious about I want to grow and I everybody I hear in supply diversity, we want to grow by X. We want to grow by X, whether X is a percentage or a dollar amount. You know, I've never heard anybody say, yeah, we're good. Right. We've got enough. <laughs> right. Even we can't supply- handle anything else. Yeah. Right. You know, every supplier we own is diverse. So we're all good here. Never um, heard that. No, no, no. Never heard that. So we know there's room. We also know there's low risk projects. 
in there's a every lot of low commodity. Risk. Yes. There's a ton in of every, low risk. In every commodity, there are yes. low risk opportunities that give you an opportunity to understand that organization, figure out if you want to set them up or put position them to respond to a larger opportunity. Yep. yep. But I would like to say this. So I want to challenge now our diverse community. Okay. So this comes from a place of love. But remember, my entire career in sourcing and supplier <laughs> diversity and as a diverse supplier and now as a corporate buyer again has been in and around contingent labor and professional services. Mm. Okay. Here's a little quiz. How many, if I have 10 companies in my mentoring program, how many are contingent labor and professional services? <laughs> Six. Eight to nine. I guess. <laughs> Eight to nine. It's usually 80 to 90%. Really? Wow. Yes. Why? Because they realize that relationship comes first. Yeah. And they realize that they want to build a relationship with anybody and everybody. Yeah. So if you own a marketing company, a printing company, any other company, not that I don't love you guys. I love you contingent labor. You guys got to get involved in this stuff, please. You do. I think we just totally went off topic of this podcast, but, you know, it's all good. Well, to get us back. I started it. So, you know, I only can point on myself. (laughs) We can definitely go around and around, around, you know, what sort of opportunities diverse suppliers should be going after. But exactly. You know, know, what is the industry standard? What would you say, Adam, in the way that suppliers and buyers should typically interact? You know, we always talk about power struggles and different things. Who, Who holds the power in this relationship? You know, it's interesting. So right now, I would say the corporates hold the power in the relationship, 100%, right? He who owns the money owns the power. I have often yeah. said and have preached in front of diverse suppliers. I was like, there's more of you than them, right? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, numbers give the power, right? And maybe you don't have the power of money, but you have the power of voice. Right. You know, and I see so much fragmentation inside the diverse community. It's really like, man, we need a more cohesive body, right? And even at that, when I look at the NGOs, I'm like, you guys, and I get it. They're competing for membership, right? Because membership drives dollars, keeps the organization alive. But at some point, we've got to sit there and go, how do we have a cohesive voice of you guys have got to change? And I'm looking at the big NGOs out there that we all know and love. We've got to have a bigger collective voice. To me personally, I'm going to get on my soapbox. This is why things like the billion dollar roundtable are outdated. I'm sorry. It is. Right. I'm not impressed. Yeah. I'm not impressed by international firms being on the billion dollar roundtable. I'm just I'm not. That does not impress me. It's a lot of money. Thank you for spending it with diverse suppliers. I wish I could do the same thing, but not impressive. What would be impressive is some progressive programs. Yeah. And, and I'm the sorry. recognition of those progressive programs. Thank you. Yes. And if you're a corporate listening to our show and you have a progressive program, please reach out. We'd love to talk to you. Everybody else hear yeah. the crickets? <laughs> no, I'm sure. I mean, we've talked about this numerous times. Like, yeah. you know, Accenture and what Nidra is doing over there. They are doing. Yes. There are some. There are there definitely are some. Yes. Some organizations that are, are really doing an excellent job of preparing their suppliers, creating opportunities for them. 
if it's not directly with Accenture, then it's with some of their other clients. They make introductions. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very well thought out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And in all honesty, and now giving my corporates a little bit of a break, sometimes it's hard to have an innovative program because you have so many other pressures on you. That's true. You That's know, true. You really do. just one. Or exactly. I mean, you can only do so many things. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, but I guess the other thing, too, is, is them having the power good or bad? Does it keep the playing field level? This is a hotly debated topic, right? Because when you start looking at this question, it's hard to say. So I, I also have to now look at some of my billion dollar, you know, diverse firms, right? You know, and, and some of them now, some of them are doing a very good job of reaching back and trying to have their own development programs. Right. Major kudos to you. But in an RFP, no, the playing field is often not level. No, not at all. Not at all. I don't know how we how we level it other than and and I mean you don't want to give anyone an unfair advantage either. But Right. Exactly. And you don't want to penalize a non-diverse firm who is a world leader in a topic. Exactly. Right, cuz then we are truly kind of crippling in an economy. So it's a very delicate balance to to watch. But I think we need to put some more attention to it. What is the solution? I don't know if I have it right here on this show, but I can tell you that there are some instances we sit there and go, wow, there was that person had not a shot at all in this event. And then there are other times you're kind of surprised that the little guy won. So it's really it's really interesting. But I have to say, too, I mean, I have the other stories on the other side. When I was first a supplier diversity manager, I remember a supplier that won an RFP, been chasing this company for years. And I said, so you're in. How's things going? And they looked at me and said, if I knew how it really was to work for you, I would have never put this much energy into it. Yeah, that's real. That's, you know? That's a very real statement. And I think yeah. if they would have known that up front and known, hey, this is what's going to be expected of you. This is going to be the time commitment. This is, are you in a place that you're ready to do that or take your business to this next level? Sometimes yeah. people think they are. Yep. And then when they get into those situations or they get the contract, they realize this is actually more work than I was expecting. And maybe it's not so much that they, you know, they don't want to do it. They just may not have the capacity on their team. Exactly. Exactly. And that comes back to the transparency statement from earlier. Right. You know, so kind of in, in, in closing a little bit. Right. And Chloe, you know, you've been on this side for a long time. But what are some of the no-nos that you would tell buyers to watch out for when dealing with small and diverse businesses? I mean, I think one of the biggest things is you're, particularly if it's a new supplier that you're working with, you're trying to build trust with them. So building trust, is, there's a lot of different ways that, that you can do that. But again, if it's a new relationship, responsiveness is a big thing. So if you're working with a supplier and they're not responsive to you, then that is an indication of what the relationship is going to look like moving forward. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. You need I, to be responsive. You yeah. need to respond to your clients in a timely manner. And that's 24 hours in my opinion. Right. Right. Because especially at a certain level... I mean, that's life and death sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. We're super important. What would you say? 
are some no's. You know what a big no-no for me is, is when you're dealing with a small business and you are unwilling to renegotiate your payment terms. Right. Right, because you really put people in a bind, especially when you have 45 days and beyond. Right? 30 days, eh, it's not the best. Right. right. But I think most businesses can cycle if they're good enough, can cycle that. Yeah. 45 and beyond, that's tough, guys. That's just, that's really tough because you're talking about impacting payrolls at that point. Right. And, and that type of thing. And so that's that is really tough to cycle that out if you don't have a lot of cash uh, on hand uh, without having to dip into different loans and, and, and products like that. I would say. I would just make it a blanket policy that under X amount, you know, revenue or or based on the contract, it's, you know, net zero, pay on receipt. Pay on receipt. That because, would be yeah, if you're a Fortune 500 and you can't pay a small business on receipt, oh, we might need to look a little closer at your books too. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think I mean, some of them is just a strategy to just hold on to cash. And right. Of course it is. Reasons and, and I mean, it's business decisions, but I think you have to be mindful of the small businesses and the economy that you yes. support as well yes. as a large and, organization. And I'm thinking most, when I'm saying that too, is I'm really thinking about our retail suppliers, yes. our retail outlets, right? Because if you have 45 days and beyond, you've basically sold a product on what we would call the VIC in trading. Uh, right in in commodities, because I've bought a product from you. I've put it on my shelf. I've sold it, but I haven't paid you because my payment terms are forty five plus. Yes, which means not only did I sell that product for free, depending on where it's sold inside that forty five day period, I've actually got a loan from you to sell that product. Right. Yeah, Gosh. I don't. I don't see the equity there, like at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's something that corporations need to be mindful of, and not all of them are. That, right. yes, they have to get these refactoring or accounts receivable loans just to be able Thank to you. start. Thank you. I know we mentioned this in the past, but I think it's time for us to build our own code of conduct that yes. we yes. put and leave for our listeners. And yeah. we'd love to hear if there's anything that we've left off or if there's anything that you think we should include in that list because it's a collective and it's an ecosystem effort. And I think that the more input that we have, the better that our interactions with each other will all be. Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, thank you for listening and be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn at Chloe Reed and Adam Moore. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out our previous shows. Stay tuned for next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.